this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Walter Johnson. Walter is a Winthrop professor of history and professor of African and African-American studies at Harvard. He is the author of The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis, and the Violent History of the United States. Hello, Walter. Welcome. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to try and be weird, wacky, and wonderful. You that, then you're perfect for this. This is what I knew about you. So I knew I, you'd be perfect for this show. <laughs> but I met you because of TEDx St. Louis. And you, you and Tef Poe were a, uh, were, did an interview at one of our virtual events. Do you want to talk to that? What was that experience like? Um, it's always nice to to talk with Tuff, and I um, I have learned an enormous amount both about St. Louis and about um, political struggle from him. So that was it was fun. It was uh, you know as you remember, it was technologically out of control. So a lot it's, of it was was kind of hilarious. It's yeah, it's a whole new world trying to figure out how yeah. to do these events online. Right. No, that was, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to be able to reconstruct it, but there was the particularly nice and earnest social scientist who had arranged a music and basically his music played over his entire presentation. So that was fun. <laughs> We're working on it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I do it low tech, you know, <laughs> like, like this is, this is, I, I don't even try the share screen thing. No. No, not for I, you? No, I get not it. for me. Not for me. I get it. I get it. So um, are you from St. Louis or what no, is your I'm history with St. Louis? Okay. Yeah, I'm, I grew All up right. in Columbia um, and I traveled to St. Louis a lot as a child. I have an aunt and uncle who live in St. Louis to whom, um, with whom my family was very close. So we, we went to St. Louis a lot, but um, mostly to their house, which was in, in University City during the time I was small. And then they, they moved um, to, to various, they were in Ladue for a while and then to Clayton, and now they're back in University City. Um, gotcha. And, you know, we used to, I mean, some of my earliest, I think, and most intense childhood memories are of the zoo. I was obsessed with Marlon Perkins. I was a regular viewer of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And I, I actually have a very vivid visual memory of one time seeing Marlon Perkins at the zoo. Really? Yeah. So, yeah. oh my Tell gosh. Tell you a little bit about how old I am. Well, I think I'm probably there with you, sir. <laughs> yeah. So when, so were you going to the zoo when they used to have all the shows, when they had the sea lion shows and all of that? Yeah, I think my my parents were probably a little bit too too cheap or too I, I don't know what they were. Um, what I remember most vividly about the zoo, I, you know, I remember the big cat enclosures, of course, but yep. um, was a train. Like that was the that was the special yes. thing that we did was the the zoo train, and I remember having the um, you know the tickets, which were probably maybe four by six you know, almost like little postcards. I remember taking those home as souvenirs. And of course it was, um, you know, I started going there, this must've been the early seventies. And so the, the highway culture still seemed like it was inflected with the, the highway world of the, you know, the forties or fifties. And so a big landmark for me, a place that I only went once in my life 
um, was Noah's Ark right there in St. Charles, right before the bridge. Yeah, I from, used that was my birthday. West. That was like yeah, the right. place I went for my birthday was Noah's Ark. Yeah, so I, I think I think my parents took me in there one time. That was you know, <laughs> it was it was memorable enough that I I am you know I'm 53 years old. <laughs> I remember that. It was I 40, totally remember Noah's ago. Ark. Yeah. That was a that was a landmark. I don't yeah. know. And then I can't remember when it went away, but yeah, I don't think sometime, any of it's left. No, I think it was still there. You know, I, I when I was in college, I would drive back and forth a lot. And so I, I've driven that stretch road a lot of times. And I think it was there through the, certainly through the 80s. Um, but maybe sometime, you know, sometime in the 90s or right after that, they took it down. Oh, my gosh, memory. So was, was this sort of... Uh, uh, Memories of St. Louis, was that one of the reasons why you wanted to write your book around? Um, you know, I mean, almost, uh, I, I guess in, in a different way, probably the opposite um, in the sense that it came out of a kind of a being invited to St. Louis to give a talk in 2014 while the uprising in Ferguson was going on. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I guess it is related to being from Missouri and feeling somehow shaped by and even responsible for Missouri. Um, and I felt like I couldn't go and give a talk in St. Louis. It was at WashU without, um, talking about what was happening. I felt called in that way because I'm a 19th century historian. Most of my, my training and my, my work is on the period before the Civil War. Okay. So I started at that point to look into the, the political economy of, of Ferguson, and I guess I started to drive a different way in St. Louis. Um, it's, it was almost as if I had never been to St. Louis. I had certainly never been to the parts of the city that I began to to um, to drive through and to see and to, I guess, habituate a little bit more. Because as you know, from living in St. Louis, you know, St. Louis is full of, of what are effectively bypass routes. Right. Um, there's a way to traverse the city um, and the county and to, to maintain yourself, to, to stay in kind of middle class, upper middle class, white dominated spaces. And so that was a kind of a, you know, it was a confrontation for me, both with a different version of St. Louis, but also with, with my own past and the way that I, I you know, in a way was seeing um, a place that I thought I had been to many times for the first time. So what made you decide to go off the the route you were used to off the grid. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I just, I, I felt called. I felt like I had to talk about the political economy of Ferguson. I had to try to engage that struggle in some kind of useful way to take, um, you know, whatever small measure of ability I had as a researcher and writer. And certainly, um, in comparison to most people, I have the luxury of time because part of my job is just to sit and um, read things and, and think about them. So to try to provide some kind of raw material for that. Um, and I, I think that does probably tie to some kind of feeling, like I say, of, of um, responsibility or even debt for my own um, you know, my own upbringing, my own 
embeddedness in in some of the the structures in Missouri. But I left when I was 17. You know, I I am a proud Missourian, but I left Missouri when I was 17. And I I really didn't ever think of coming back. And nor did I think about working on the history of Missouri. I remember, you know, as I went through graduate school, my mother, um, God bless her soul, would would send me books, you know, Missouri history. I mean, these, these, you know, annals of Missouri, et cetera, et cetera. And I would just, you know, I'd kind of put them on the shelf and not read them. It was not something I really wanted to engage, but, but all of a sudden I felt called. And that's been interesting. It's been interesting to read about and understand in a different way, certain kinds of events um, that were at the edge of my consciousness when I was growing up patterns of history that were, um, I think, repeated or also um, happened in Columbia, where I'm from, that I, I hadn't, you know, fully understood. I had only dimly understood that I perhaps should have understood better. Um, I make a lot in the book about um, Harlan Bartholomew, who was the urban planner who so profoundly shaped St. Louis and um, and and I think was um, had a, had a profoundly negative effect on the history of Black St. Louis, and it's only been about you know six weeks or a month ago I discovered that Harlan Bartholomew actually was responsible for the urban quote renewal of Harlan Bartholomew and Associates, his firm was responsible for the urban renewal in Columbia, where I'm from, tearing down the black neighborhood in Columbia and replacing it effectively with parking lots. And so, you know, I I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of this history that I wrote that has um, shadowed my own life and that in, in ways both obvious and not obvious I've benefited from. And so there was a kind of a um, effort to, to think that through. So I have to admit, I've never heard of Harlan Bartholomew. Um, is that unusual to not hear about him or not? If you're not obsessed with the history of urban planning, Um, if you're, if you're interested in the history of urban planning, he's a major figure in the planning history of the United States. And he's a major figure in the history of St. Louis, um, who the, the footprint of the city of St. Louis, where the roads go, where the parks are, where, you know, what's, what's single family housing, what's zone for industry, et cetera. Um, but particularly the outline of the interstate highways and where um, urban renewal ultimately occurred is based on a 1947 comprehensive plan that, that Bartholomew did. So he, he had a, I, I think the way that people refer to him is as one of the leading urban planners in the United States whose laboratory was St. Louis. That's where he tried out his, really? his ideas. Yeah. So this is, it's the same in other cities because, you know, that's one of the things that I've always found interesting is there are things happening in your own backyard. You never see them. Those yeah. people are not the people I see when I go shopping or where I drive to and what have you. And it, I do see that as, uh, an issue because if you don't see it and, and someone doesn't bring it to your attention, which you obviously did in the book, then how do you know? It's not yeah. talked about. It, you know, it's it's not common knowledge. And so, did he bring this? Use St. Louis as his laboratory, and then took that across the United States. Or yeah, I, I think that I think it would be fair to say. So Bartholomew was interested in. Um, 
transportation, particularly automobiles and in single family housing. And so if we try to imagine how it is that that particular form of social blindness that you're describing, that that mm-hmm. kind of socially structured um, not seeing uh, was materially built into the landscape. It's through the interstates and the suburbs. And that was that that was Bartholomew's um, he, his particular um, genius was for that type of planning. Another example, you know, a Bartholomew Imagine project is the is the metro in, in Washington D.C., which again is um, a um, allows suburbanites to commute into the city and then out to to single family homes. And God, yeah. so I, you know, I I I, I 100% agree with the notion that our um, everyone's understanding of the world is is structured by their material experience and we need to then think about the material experience of our lives and not just in St. Louis but in the United States as being structured by um, by inequality by by systems that that were materially built into into the world that were designed to um, shield and protect white privilege from confrontation with uh, with with black people and and ultimately with black poverty. So when you went off the grid, as you say, where did you drive? I started just driving straight lines. You know, rather than the, you know, so so right. If you, if you drive a a straight line from Ferguson to downtown St. Louis, mm-hmm. you drive through North St. Louis. You drive first of all by Belfont Cemetery and where Dred Scott is buried, right there on North West Forest Avenue, right. And so I, right. I became obsessed with these different interesting proximities, the proximity of the place where Dred Scott is buried to the um, uprising in Ferguson. Or the proximity of um, the proximities of Pine Lawn, right? So Pine Lawn is the place where um, William Clark, the explorer, had his sort of out of the city farm. It's a place where he signed numerous dispossessive treaties with with Native American nations in the uh, in the period where he was the superintendent of the United States Indian Agency. And Pine Lawn is you know, you'll know is, was the site of the largest small arms production plant in the world at the time of the Second World War. And it was a place where there was a lot of labor struggle, um, particularly struggle by African-American activists to get employed in defense industries um, to which they were, they, you know, the defense industry was um, legally integrated by, by President Roosevelt. And so there was a big struggle during the Second World War um, black workers trying to get get defense jobs, um, and then Pine Lawn was later the place where um, Paul McCulloch, the St. Louis uh, police officer, who was sort of famously shot in the Pruitt Igo housing project, right. grew up. Robert McCulloch, the prosecutor, grew up there. But Paul McCulloch, I mean, Pine Lawn is also the place where Michael Brown's family is from, right? And okay. you know, and interestingly, also the place where my aunt grew up. And so those those sorts of layered proximities um, struck me as as interesting and and almost uncanny, as if 
as if the the proximity of Dred Scott and the Ferguson uprising or of William Clark and the small arms factory or of the McCulloch family and the and the Brown family and indeed my own family were were trying to tell me something and so it was right. really really wow. that that I became It's like you were being obsessed led there. With. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't want to be too too goofy about it, but it that it seemed to me like there's something about those those proximities that I wanted to try to communicate um, in a way that's, you know, not quite rational. So when and how did you meet Tef? Um, so I started out, you know, as I said, I started out doing this, um, this project on the political economy of Ferguson. And part of that was looking at um, tax abatements. Um, so, you know, the thing that initially struck me and continues to strike me about Ferguson is the question, well, how, how is it that you can have a city that is so short of revenue that they're, they're reverting to what's effectively a medieval model of revenue extraction, right? They are, are taxing poor pilgrims on the road. This, this is how castles raised revenue in the medieval period, wow. right? So, so they're, they're giving out these tickets to poor black motorists right? when at the same time they have Emerson Electric right in the city limits. You have a Fortune 500 company in the city limits. So, you know, it was a naive question, but the question is how? And so I was trying to learn about tax abatements and you know, who was getting tax abatements and how they were getting them. And I was watching various um, sort of, uh, I, both the city council meetings and the, and the, the, county, um, the county meetings online. And, and at one of those meetings, and I don't, I don't really remember which it was, I, I always think it was the Ferguson City Council meeting. I think Tuff thinks it was a county meeting. I saw him right during the uprising, right, because I was doing this work in, say, September and October of 2014, um, at a meeting just reading the people out, you know, truth-telling in a way that was eloquent and passionate and pointed. And I thought, well, you know, this is um, an energy and, and insight that I think that, that people at Harvard, where I work, I think people here need to, need to learn about those. And so I invited him here um, to give a talk. And it was, you know, very, a lot of people, high energy, great insight. And we, we became, we became friends after that. Just, you know, sort of, I, I, I was spending more time in St. Louis. I, you know, at some point, probably right around the time he just, he came and gave that talk, I decided to actually go ahead and my wife had to like urge me for like two months to actually write a book about St. Louis. I, I had thought I would just do this, this thing on Ferguson as a kind of a one-off. Um, right. And, uh, you know, so I was, I ended up traveling out there a little bit more. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we just, we just became friends through that. Gotcha. Very cool. So is there anything else? I mean, you know, for, the people out there who haven't yet read your book that would surprise them about, I mean, I'm surprised yeah. about, I, I have been surprised about Ferguson and that whole idea of giving tickets to people that can't afford the tickets. And now they're on this treadmill of if they, you know, unfairly getting more tickets and then now they're in jail and it's just, 
it's so messy and it's so, it just amazes me that this happens. Yeah, I think a lot of it is actually indicative of a particular moment in um, the economy of what I would call the the history of racial capitalism at this point, where uh, because of, number one, the flight of work and industry in the first instance to the suburbs, Mm -hmm. and number two, the flight of capital overseas, um, a lot of people who once um, were necessary to the workings of, of capital in the United States have been rendered um, surplus. And I think that what, what you see in a place like Ferguson, North County, North City, um, and the United States in general are different kinds of strategies emerging to take advantage of those people economically nevertheless, right? So not through exploitative employment, but actually through forms of extraction. So payday loans, for-profit policing. Um, And and finally, I see see mass incarceration as as another one of those forms of extraction where the um, incarceration of poor and black and um, predominantly poor black people um, for, you know, in many cases, meaningless crimes um, provides jobs for, for white prison guards and right. for white construction workers in, in rural communities. And so I try and make a connection in the book between the expansion of incarceration in Missouri and the um, the rural positioning, you know, the the disposition of of state prisons in Missouri is almost entirely in, in tiny little towns. That you know, even I, as a as a Missourian who used to follow high school sports, I hadn't you know heard of a lot of these places. And so there's an economy there where the value is being extracted from urban black populations and, and redistributed to rural white populations. And, and so, yeah, so in that sense, the, the for-profit policing, I think is really the, you know, indicative of a larger, a larger moment. I, I think the thing that I was struck by that I didn't expect to find and that, that I f- was, was heartening was that there's a very long, um, radical history in the history of St. Louis, dating back to the Civil War and even before. And, you know, I was I was struck by that some of the, the Civil War history um, heroes in St. Louis, whether you're talking about Franz Ziegel, who there's a statue in, in Forest Park of Franz Ziegel, uh, Joseph Vedemeyer, who organized the artillery defense of the city during the Civil War, they were communists. They were actually you know, true life German communists. Wow. Um, was a close friend of, of Karl Marx and a publisher of some of Marx's most important work. And so following that history up through the general strike of 1877 in the city and through the um, mutual support and organizing of African-American women and communists in the, in the 1930s, African-Americans, particularly women and communists in the, in the 1930s, um, and then, you know, seeing some of that, that energy and organizing carried through the struggles in the 60s around Jefferson Bank or the different employment struggles, particularly things led by, by Percy Green and, and I would argue even up through, for, through Ferguson. That was, you know, new, new information to me and exciting 
um, as a, you know, I, I mean, I, I think of myself as being a kind of a politically extreme person on the left. And so to find that radical history in the, in the Midwest was, um, felt like coming home a little bit to me. That is, I have, this is all news to me. That is. No, it's amazing. It's an amazing history. Wow. Yeah. Okay, and we have their statues. Awesome. Yeah, there's a right. Well, don't tell, <laughs> tell don't tell anybody. They have a 25 foot statue of a communist in Forest Park, but this doesn't seem like there. a good idea to me. Yeah. But I don't. Oh, that yeah. doesn't work in my world. Yeah. Um, wow. And so, any signs that things are going in the right direction? Well, I mean, I see signs all over the city. You know, the the book ends with an epilogue um, about people who are doing, I think, small, beautiful things in the city of St. Louis, creating what I imagine to be fragments of a, of a better future. Um, and you know, it's it's generally just because of the way that I think about politics and the way that I think about um, justice. It's sometimes those visionary projects um that i i look to almost more than than anything else okay um i think people in st louis are are justly proud of electing the the progressive prosecutors um kim gardner and and wesley bell i think that that um i think there's a limit to be quite honest to what a progressive prosecutor can do and without any disrespect to them, I think that the level of opposition and animosity that they have encountered after their election and of non-cooperation from the police departments, the police union, and, and other elected officials, including the mayor, is, is indicative of a deeper, um, deeper struggle, that the struggle reaches beyond the, the ability to elect progressive prosecutors. Um, oh, you know, that, that's a struggle that, that I see still emblematized in the, in the disparities in, you know, the COVID rates or the, the spatial and racial disparities. Um, you know, like anybody else, um, I, well, I don't know about like anybody else, but like many of the people who are <laughs> my friends, so I guess it's not like anybody else. I, I think Cori Bush is a, extraordinary and inspiring figure and so that that that's certainly i think something that um people people have to take seriously her election and and certainly there's a generation of young black activists um who have come out of the ferguson uprising like cory bush like kayla reed like derica pernell like tough poe uh many 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 others um, who are building on the work of people like Jamala Rogers and, and Percy Green. And um, I think that, that that's, that's exciting. That's good. We need that. Absolutely. We need that. Yeah. So in your book, um, I have some really specific questions I yeah. wanted to ask you. And it was um, described as a personal reckoning, as partly a personal reckoning. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess what they're saying is, you know, that I can't remember if that was like a blurb or if that's something the press wrote. Um, I, I mean, I, there, there are moments in the book where I try to be forthright about the fact that, um, 
you know, I'm a, I'm a white person. I'm a white man from Missouri. And so a lot of this is my history. And there, there are, you know, whether you're talking about the, um, the patterns of, of school funding or school segregation or anxiety about real estate or, or simply the inheritance value of, of, of real estate and the way that wealth is passed from one generation to another through, through um, home ownership. These are all things that I, you know, these are, these are all part of my life. Right. And, um, and also the kind of, um, what, what you were talking about, the sort of structured blindness, the, you know, the in, incomplete sort of ability to, to understand things where there are, are small signs of meanness or injustice. And, you know, growing up, um, I, I think they're definitely either lacking curiosity or replacing curiosity about the way world the world works with ideology, particularly white supremacist ideology, i.e. let's blame people for their their own condition right. instead of trying to understand the history that, that made the world. Or then, you know, probably honestly for me, a certain kind of flight, right? I mean, I left Missouri at, at 17 and um, I... I didn't necessarily want to come back and own it. There was something to me that was very appealing for a long portion of my life about just being, um, and I liked places where everyone was from somewhere else. I love living in New York city. I actually love living in, in California where, um, you know, I, I didn't necessarily feel, uh, like like an insider or an outsider, I just felt kind of rootless, like and and that a lot of people there were rootless, and and so I think for me part of of at least the the energy and and maybe even some of the the anger that's in the book um, comes from a kind of a reckoning with my own past. I mean, there's a, there's a strange way in which the person whose work both mm, and, you know, just, just um, I don't know what the word would be, triggered me the most as I did the research for the book and also spoke to me the most was, was Jonathan Franzen, who's from St. Louis, who's, who right. writes, writes beautifully about St. Louis and about a childhood not dissimilar from mine, about, the, you know, the church group and the corduroy pants and the material culture, all very, very familiar to me. But with a kind of occlusion, a kind of a limit of, of vision, a kind of an inability to see beyond the, in his case, the, the city limits of West, Webster Groves, that I both could remember as my own way of seeing and wanted to decry as, as a, a limited partisan race, class, gender stipulated way of seeing. So is this also what led you to, to be a professor of African and African-American studies? Um, you know, I mean, I think it's at some point, I've always been obsessed with meanness, you know, whether, and I, I think gradually in a way, my understanding of, of meanness became more historical and more political and more structured around the questions of racial capitalism. And I, you know, I, 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 it, that didn't, you could argue it happened to me late in life, 
but probably in, in graduate school at some point, my, the woman who became my advisor, who's a intellectual stalwart hero of mine, Nell Painter, you know, she, she convinced me in a way that if you weren't wrestling with the history of, in my case at that point, slavery, but if you weren't wrestling with the history of white supremacy and capitalism, of racial capitalism in the United States, that you were evading the history. You were, you know, you, you weren't really facing facing what the history was about. And so that was the the pathway. I think that it is a, um, yes, I think it was a pathway that was shaped by, um, by things that I saw as a child and um, knew were wrong, even though all of the, you know, not all of the adults, because my, my mother was certainly a righteous woman my, and my father was in his own way a very, very, righteous person. Um, but many of the adults who were construed to be the moral authorities in the society seemed, you know, either oblivious or supportive of things that my own kind of sense of right and wrong that was based in my house, you know, and in my right. church was, was telling me, you know, how, how is it that these people are, are saying this? How is it that they're calling themselves Christians and then, then they allow, you know, they allow the world to look like this. Right. Right. And, and um, I, I think I, I had a hard time sitting with that. And, uh, you know, I guess in a way I, I still do. So I, I have a very, um, somebody, another person I admire a great deal is an activist named Phil Agnew, who I've become friends with. And he says he came to the work from, you know, first his heart, and then his feet, and then his head, meaning that he, he felt that things were wrong, and then he got involved in the struggle, and then book learning followed. And for me, it was slightly different that, that you know, I, I, in my heart, I, you know, I could, uh, the meanness, I just, I was always obsessed with meanness, and that's not to say that I didn't ever, you know, that I wasn't ever mean or, you know, fallen myself. But you know, and then I did a lot of book learning, and then gradually I um, started to to try to engage more forthrightly. And so, part of the project in St. Louis has been to try to develop a fuller spectrum of of engagement with with the city, and to try, you know, not just to write a book about it, but to try to to help out in some tiny way, and that. Rightly or wrongly, you know, I may have been giving myself too much credit. That's that's what I started with with the Ferguson article. It was like, well, you know, here's something that that I can see because of the, the way that I've been taught to see, right. and that I have the time to do the research on, and that I feel like other people need to know, right? Because there was all this. I mean, you know, if you go back and look at the the visual history of the uprising in Ferguson. It's almost as if the photographers and the the camera people for the networks were deliberately excluding Emerson Electric from their shots because it, it just didn't make sense, right? Really? It, wow. it visually okay. doesn't make sense to right. have a you know a Fortune 500 co- company in a place that they were trying to represent as um, you know that this urban America, right, as, as right. this kind of impoverished and abandoned place. And I would argue that, that in many ways Ferguson is 
impoverished and abandoned. But, um, you know, what's a Fortune 500 company doing? The, the, right. the optics are messed up. You know, you said something there. You said how you were taught to see things. And it makes me think about how we are taught history, which is pretty whitewashed, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I mean, has there been any movement in teaching our children more of history seen through the eyes of people that are not white, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there, I I think that there is, but I think it's, you know, I I think that it's difficult to figure out how to expose children to our history, which is so violent. And so I think what you see is a, um, a confrontation and effort to to treat those things um, in a manner that may or may not be fully forthright or appropriate at early age that then falls away. And so, in, you know, in many states, the, the history of slavery is taught in fourth grade and not after. Right. And so, right. you know, what can, right. and, and so I, I think there's a lot of, I think there are a lot of, of well-intended, efforts certainly and and in a way you know i think that that some of my children have learned wonderful things about about wonderful and powerful ideas about history in schools but i think that on the one hand these have been i think bitterly resented by a certain stratum of white people who who think that these you know i mean more or less you can see this in the the struggle over something like a columbus monument who right. think that they're somehow being personally persecuted or dragged through the mud be, if, if we try to have a forthright conversation about history. Um, and I think that, that that's, you know, produced a, a kind of a reactionary tendency. So, you know, I, ultimately, I think that, that you, you, have to, you just have to tell the truth. And right. you, you, have to, you have to tell the truth you know, so so Lewis and Clark were actually on a kind of a military and economic reconnaissance mission for the U.S. Army, and that that's just the truth, right? That, yeah. That's not that's not language. That that's that's like you know that's not a dirty trick to say that. Right. Um, many of the leading figures of the early republic you know, used words like exterminate when they talked about Native Americans. Well, okay, that, that's just genocide, right? I mean, that, right. that's what it is. That's, that's not ideological or particularly ideological. That's just telling the truth. Abraham Lincoln was himself a member of the Illinois State Militia who, who fought in the Black Hawk War. Okay, so he was a settler militia man. That's just what he was, right? Right, And right. so that, to me, I think that... Um, yeah, that, that maybe there, there's a little bit of a, there's a deficit of truth-telling um, at the higher levels of the society that, you know, we, we, we can't necessarily blame elementary school teachers for not being able to fully manage that. Sure. Very interesting. Oh, my gosh, Walter, thank you. All right, well, that was fun. It's good to see you again. Yeah, yeah and that always... was, I, I so appreciate your time. I mean, I've, You're giving me a lot to think about. All right. Well, it's always fun to talk about St. Louis.
I love it very much. Thank you, sir. Okay. And uh, uh, where and where can people buy your book? Amazon, I'm guessing. Amazon, they have it. Also, if you're in St. Louis, I'd say Left Bank Books, right? I mean, Left Bank Books is kind of they're keeping it afloat through the pandemic, but, but that's a good good place to hit them. Absolutely. Well, thank you, sir. You have a great day. Everyone out there, please have wonderful days and we love you. Bye. <laughs>